Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelen Tsinzi, Tabiso Luhuko and Tami Kuza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Fear in Somalia after Al-Shabaab announced that it was planning an attack and Zimbabwean youth begin construction on the of the only resource center meant to benefit young people in the country. The first up the news with Onelin Zinzi. Thank you, Lulu. Looking at your news update, hundreds of Mozambicans have fled into neighboring countries. Commissioner for Malawi's Mwaza District, Gift Raposo, says about 700 Mozambicans fled into the country two weeks ago and more are crossing the border to escape fighting between the Mozambican army and fighters loyal to the opposition party Renamo. Mozambican Agriculture Minister Jose Pacheco, who is the government's chief negotiator with Renamo, says Renamo fighters carried out two attacks in northern Tete province, violating a peace agreement signed last year before the general elections. Cameroon plans to send an additional 2,000 soldiers to its far north region after three suicide bomb attacks in the regional capital Maroa in the past week by a suspected Boko Haram militant group. The move comes after a raft of measures in recent days to tighten security in Maroa and other major cities, including a ban on burqas, hawking and begging. The government has also shut down some mosques and Islamic schools in the far north and imposed a curfew on bars after 6 p.m. local time. Libya's eastern city of Benghazi has been plunged into darkness as clashes between pro-government forces and Islamist fighters knocked out three of five power stations serving the city. Power has been off for 16 hours a day in the port city where forces loyal to the official government based in the east have been fighting Islamist groups for 15 months, a battle that has turned parts of Benghazi into ruins. A state power firm in Benghazi says ongoing fightings made it impossible to reach the damaged stations adding the state power firm was running out of spare parts Some experts have raised concern that setting a deadline for signing a new compromise agreement seems to be a repeat of history in the South Sudan mediation. This after South Sudan warring parties were given an August 4th deadline to review a compromise agreement designed by the Intergovernmental Authority Development. A similar deadline set by Egad in March this year was not honored. Chief negotiator for the South Sudan government in the peace talk Neil Neng the killing and the bloodletting does not need to await the conclusion of a comprehensive peace agreement you know we we have said time and again that uh, we need to adhere to the cessation of hostilities agreement of the 23rd of january uh, 2014 
And finally, a new plan to end extreme poverty has been endorsed by the UN General Assembly. On Monday, United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said the Addis Ababa Action Agenda provides a new framework for financing sustainable development. This agenda is the outcome document of the Third International Conference on, fi- on Financing for Development, a four-day meeting which took place earlier this month. Stephanie Kutrix has more. Member states of the UN General Assembly adopted on Monday the Addis Ababa Action Agenda, which was described by the UN chief as a major step towards ending poverty in all its forms. The 193 countries of the United Nations agreed on measures to generate investments to tackle economic, social and environmental challenges. Speaking at the UN General Assembly in New York, Ban Ki-moon said the agenda provides a guide for actions by all stakeholders. Mr. Ban added that the agenda has also laid a strong foundation to support Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, which are expected to be adopted by member states in September. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinti. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onel. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Al-Shabaab militants in Somalia have announced their clandestine, on their clandestine radio station monitored in the capital Mogadishu that they will carry out another attack at an undisclosed location. The announcement comes shortly after the militants killed 11 people after using explosives to partially destroy a building housing four embassies. James Shimangula reports. The clandestine radio station which Al-Shabaab militants used to announce their next attack was heard in the Somali capital Mogadishu. However, the militants did not say precisely when the attack will occur or disclose the place they are targeting. The militants' announcement comes shortly after they used explosives to blow up part of Jazeera Hotel in Mogadishu. The hotel located near Mogadishu airport houses four embassies and is heavily guarded. I reached Opio Ododa, African Union's senior civil affairs officer in Mogadishu, by telephone and asked him for an update starting with the casualties. Here is how Ododa responded to my questions beginning with the casualties. Looking at uh, what has happened and given that Obama was just here a couple of hours ago, what goes through your mind about security in Mogadishu? Al-Shabaab has uh, claimed responsibility for what they did. They have mentioned that this is a retaliation for the fences that Amazon has uh, started in uh, lower Juba region, particularly in Barbera. So I don't think it's related to what the fact that Obama was in Nairobi. In other words, uh, they are just retaliating for Amisom's um, claim of victory in uh, a place called Dineso and Barbera in Gede region, which is um, east of uh, Kenyan town of Eliwak on the border. Yes, uh, in fact, um, that that, that is what uh, Al-Shabaab leaders uh, reaction to the offensive positive results that uh, Amazon has uh, achieved in these two towns. Do you see 
a bright, uh, secure feature in Mogadishu, taking into consideration that uh, that uh, Jazeera Hotel has been um, badly damaged. Government, together with Amazon, are conducting patrols in the city, and it's not certain because these are isolated cases within the city. I think the security situation in Mogadishu is improving, but still very, very unpredictable. So is there an atmosphere of fear sweeping across Mogadishu or where you are right now in Mogadishu? How can you characterize it? The situation is characterized by uncertainty. Currently, Al Jazeera Hotel was housing at least four international embassies. So all these four embassies, uh, officials have been affected. Incidents like this happen a lot in Mogadishu. So for the Somali people, uh, they will continue with their responsibilities as usual. As African Union's senior civil affairs officer Opio Ododa has just said, Al-Shabaab attacks are common in Mogadishu, but the U.S. President Barack Obama is of the view that the East African and the Horn of Africa regions are winning war against the militants. Before leaving Nairobi for Addis Ababa, Ethiopia to address the African Union and to officially meet the authorities in Ethiopia, Obama, who was in the Kenyan capital Nairobi, was optimistic that the region had recorded successes in reducing Al-Shabaab attacks. States President Barack Obama, who is now in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa, after completing a three-day official visit to Kenya, reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shemanyula. People in South Sudan cannot afford a balanced diet and regular meals due to the ongoing fighting in the country. This according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, which estimates 4.6 million people are at risk of hunger. Some households are surviving on limited food sources. FAO's assistant representative, Nyabeni Pipo, explains the agency's efforts to stave off hunger and support agriculture in Unity State, as well as other conflict-ridden areas of the country. Security, literally it means that some households might not be able to afford a diversified food mm-hmm. source and they might not be able to afford to have three meals a day. And basically, is it because of the war, the conflict going on in the country alone? What, what could have caused us to this level? There are so many factors that bring about food insecurity. War is one of them, lack of source of income, uh, running away from your harvest because of insecurity. Yeah, so there are so many factors. Based on the IPC 
results of last year. Food, FAO has uh, set targets for the 10 states. We have decided to give some livelihood kits, which uh, some of them are crop kits, vegetable kits, fishing gears, and we're also conducting livestock vaccination. Mm -hmm. delivered up to now to about 180,000 households with these livelihood kits. We have also vaccinated close to 3 million animals with various vaccines of animals, diseases. And together with the other partners, we are delivering uh, survival kits to about, our target is about 100,000 households mm -hmm. in Southern Unity. Uh, you mentioned about Unity State particularly where sometimes it's you know not easy to locate these idps where they've been displaced tell us about your work as humanitarian organization in trying to help the people how do you sometimes assess these areas it has not been easy and there has been a, a call for a long time from the u.n agencies to the warring party especially ocha to give a pause for a period from both sides so that the, the access can be granted to go and assess it has not been easy to see or even to know up to now where these people are hiding we just go to areas where we can access. So access has not been easy and uh, it's still a challenge. And we're still looking forward to hear from the both parties, the government and the I.O. Nyabani, you did mention about the survival kits earlier that the Food and Agriculture Organization have been distributing to uh, the communities that are being displaced. Can you tell us on what is your target? I mean, how far have you gone with that program and what is your target that you would really like to achieve? Our target is to reach 100,000 households, and as I said earlier, our access is not, has not been easy. FAO is planning to start their own air operation uh, by the end of this month, where we will have a, a standby helicopter which can go to the communities, drop the, the kids, and come back. So we, we, we aim to reach 100,000 households, mm -hmm. but just to add of improvement in the agriculture sector. That was Nyabeni People, Assistant Representative of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, speaking to UN Radio Sebit William. It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now the UN mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo, MONUSCO, says there is still a lot of work that needs to be done in that country. The statement was made by the mission's chief, Martin Kobler, while back from the UN Security Council in New York, among the identified works are the security-related works such as the neutralization of armed groups, especially FDLR, and a lot of election-related work. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The chief of the UN mission here in the Democratic Republic of Congo has spoken to media here for people to know more about the meeting he has attended at the UN Security Council in New York. Martin Kobler told the journalist he has informed the members of the Security Council about a lot of work that still need to be done in this country. He said there was a big unanimity to bring support to MONUSCO. Among the works that have been identified are security and restoration of the state authority and a lot of election-related works such as the registration of young voters, financing elections, organizing peaceful elections and more. 
And as far as security is concerned, there is a big frustration at the UN Security Council since no significant progress has been made in fighting the democratic forces for the liberation of Rwanda, according to Monusco boss Martin Kobler. I highlighted three points. The first point is, of course, the security situation. I have to justify progress. Uh, there was a big anonymity on this, uh, of the Security Council to support Monusco, but there was also a big frustration on the non-progress in the FDLR file. Everybody told me, what can you do What together with the government in order to bring this to an end? We have progress in the FAPI, we have progress against the ADF, not enough, and there is still a lot of work to do, but the FDLR file is blocked and it's very important that authorization is given by the government to continue with the operations. The second question is, of course, the electoral file and the national consultations, the role of Monusco of the United Nations uh, to offer good offices because Burundi is of course an example where there is violence and there were, is a lack of dialogue between the interlocutors. This should of course be avoided here. It's very important to go on with the process of having an agreement, an agreement on the electoral calendar, on the financing, on the inclusion of the five million young voters on the voters list. I mean, there's a lot of work to do here. And the third problem is the question of the strategic dialogue with the government, the exit strategy of MONUSCO. This is, uh, as you know, the government and the United Nations. We want to reduce our presence here to find an understanding on this topic. So these were the three big clusters. A lot of work to do in the future. The UN mission is really concerned when it comes to security and restoration of the state authority. The mission chief say the political decision is needed for the resumption of military cooperation as far as the neutralization of democratic forces for the liberation of Rwanda is concerned. Meanwhile, Monusco boss believes all these problems the Democratic Republic of Congo is facing can find sustainable solutions since there is a clear agenda in that way. Once more, Martin Kobler explains. There is a clear agenda and there is a clear position also of the international community when it comes to the respect of constitution, to the keeping the electoral timetable. This is all very, very clear what we think. Really, uh, I'm a little bit concerned about the non-progress in the FDLR file because this really has to go ahead. But this requires a political decision, really a decision to authorize the FRDC to again enter into cooperation with Monaco. Discussions are underway between the DRC government and the UN mission here to try and find a way to resume their military cooperation in the operation against the Rwandan rebels of democratic forces for the liberation of Rwanda. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre.
Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa will soon host Amani Africa 2, a joint military training exercise of the African standby force. This was announced by the country's international relations minister, Maite Nguana Mashabane, at a briefing to editors and reporters in Rosebank, north of Johannesburg. Amani Africa 2 had originally been scheduled for November last year in the but was postponed following the political and security situation in that country during the period. reports. More than 5,000 soldiers, police officers and civilians from around the continent are expected to come to South Africa for the Amani Africa 2, which is scheduled to take place at the South African Army Combat Training Center in the Northern Cape Province. It is expected to be the single largest multidimensional military exercise ever held in democratic South Africa. South Africa stepped into the breach to host this exercise, which was supposed to be held in Lesotho late last year, before political and security unrest ruled that out. More from South Africa's International Relations Minister, Maite Nguana Mashabani. I can uh, gladly say to you, South Africa is hosting Amani Africa 2, end of September, beginning of October, and it will be a joint exercise that is taking place on Sadek soil, and it will be with the other volunteer countries of the African capacity for immediate response to crisis. This Amani Africa too would have taken place much earlier in Lesotho. You know what had happened in Lesotho. So there was no risk of making good use of the uh, geographic uh, ambience of the mountainous sides of Lesotho. It would have been nice. But Politically, there were challenges there, and Basutu were going to have to go to elections, through an election process again. So, again, this uh, challenge fell on us. She says all systems are on track for the training exercise. I sat in a meeting of the, or presided again, over a meeting of the ministerial committee of the organ of SADC, just a few weeks ago, that reconfirmed through our Minister of Defense and Military Veterans that all is on track. Amani Africa 2 will take place. And countries that have volunteered to Asarik have been given a permission to also participate in that so that it becomes a joint military exercise. So this is what is happening at the moment. Indications from the sources at the African Union Peace Support Division's Amani Africa 2 exercise core planning team are that a total deployment in the Northern Cape will be above the 5,000 mark. Troops for the exercise will come from regional standby forces. This includes the Southern African Development Community SADC as the main force with ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, the East Africa Standby Force, and the Economic Community of Central African States also contributing troops. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tanta Masangu in Johannesburg.
South Africa's renowned poet laureate, Professor Gilrape Zekhosetzile, has alluded that journalism has degenerated from what it was during the times of Natnakasa. Khosetzile has was delivering the keynote address at the Natnakasa inaugural memorial dialogue held at the Steve Beaker Center in Ginsburg at King Williamstown in the Eastern Cape. Professor Khosetzile says journalists these days are bound by a similar style of writing which restricts their individuality. Amanda Nano filed this report. July 2015 marks the 50th anniversary of Nakasa's death in New York. He was described as a prolific short story writer and a fearless journalist during the apartheid era. He left South Africa in 1964 on an exit permit after he was awarded a Nieman Fellowship in 1964 to study journalism at Harvard College in the USA. The apartheid government rejected his application for a passport, hence he left on an exit permit. He died in exile and his remains were buried in South Africa last year. Professor Kiropete Hositsile says journalists of today can learn a lot from Nakasa. If you have a look at the level of journalism of the 50s and early 60s, you could tell that people actually worked to hone their voices so that you could end up with a style you can identify at Netnakasas, a style already identifiable as Kentemba. But today, because of the way people work, they sit in offices as if they are secretaries at their death. Journalism lecturer at the Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University Professor Simpiwa Sasanti, who was one of the panelists, says journalists must maintain their responsibility to inform the masses. The purpose of journalism is to inform, it is to educate, and lastly to entertain. The most important is that of information and education. The point is, it is not possible that a person can inform others without the, first, the person first being informed. It is not possible to educate without you first being educated. And so a journalist being in a strategic position that they are in radios, in televisions and in newspapers have got that responsibility to, to, to retrieve the, the wealth and the heritage of our ancestors and to give it to the whole of humanity to reclaim and to rebuild humanity. Family member Tamina Gasa says they have set up a foundation to help youngsters who aspire to be journalists. All those uh, young people also who are aspiring to become like NET, become journalists, you know, uh, the foundation will go and help source out in terms of funding and, and putting bursaries to put them through schools and also help them navigate uh, work opportunities in, in different publications. That report by Amanda Nano. Zimbabwean youth have begun construction of the only resource center meant to benefit young people in the country. The new youth center comprises of record stu- recording studios pro- broadcasting equipment, career guidance, a 500-seater auditorium, as well as Wi-Fi. According to Asi Lumumba, National Chairman of the Zimbabwe Youth Council, the one million U.S. dollar youth center would benefit approximately 700,000 each year and help reduce cases of drug abuse and school dropouts, as Simon Wichema tells us from Harare. Following a tour of the new Youth Information Center in Harare Monday, hopes are high that matters of school dropouts and drug abuse will be reduced among Zimbabwean youths. The new 
One million U.S. dollar youth information center being constructed in Arare is spearheaded by the office of the Vice President Emerson Mnangagwa in Zimbabwe Youth Council. An empowerment youth vehicle for self-development will comprise of various training facilities such as broadcasting studios, recording equipment, broadband internet and workshop facilities. According to the Zimbabwe National Youth Council coordinator, S. Lumumba, the project is expected to benefit nearly 700,000 youths every year, receive self-sustainable skills in a year where nearly 90% are unemployed. A new radio station of the youths will be established, impacting career knowledge, bridging the knowledge gap between delinquency and success. Although most of the leaders running with the project are aligned to the ruling ZANU-PF, S. Lumumba assured the new youth information center is not political. Uh, how we are interpreted would be the wrong thing to spend time and energy on. I think what we should do, which would dispel that myth, which I think it is a myth, is let the center open. You know, give, give us a chance. Let the center open. You come and see how we're going to be recruiting. You interview anybody who you see and ask them if they're MDC or ZANU-PF. I honestly don't know. I don't know if Mr. Gono might contract as MDC or ZANU-PF because I think it doesn't matter. What matters is I'm trying to build this youth center so young people can get help. Ask a young person who's drunk on Krankopama shops if they're MDC or ZANU-PF. I don't know. I just think this center creates the difference between a potential uh, delinquent and a potential teacher. We can provide teacher training here. A potential prostitute for, for young girls or a potential nurse. This center is going to be the difference. I'm not really into the political fighting. I think we spend way too much time as a country talking about politics and not enough time building a country. Lumumba said Zimbabwe has more than 400 youth programs, although a number of them are not known. It is the coming up of the state-of-the-art Zimbabwe Youth Information Center that would cure that challenge. At the beginning of the year, the Minister of Youth tasked us to come up with what we wanted to be our project for the year as young people in Arare. So we sat down as a board, which is both elected and appointed, uh, and the youth caucus to decide what project we were going to embark on. We wanted to come up with a project that could address what we felt were the concerns that young people had in this city, Harare. Primary amongst those concerns for me was we needed to deal with the issue of how young people access information and resources. I am of the, I'm of the strong conviction and belief that there is everything young people need in this country. The problem is young people just don't know how to access it and they just don't know how to organize it. You have over 200 you have over 470 youth serving organizations in this country that are spending upwards of 300 million dollars a year but the challenge is no young person knows how to access them and no young person knows where to find them. So hence the idea of creating the Arare Youth Information Center. The state-of-the-art National Youth Information Center will work as a rehabilitation center for underprivileged youths, something that is yet to be done in the country. The purpose of the Arare Youth Information Center is to do a couple of things. It's the first state-of-the-art center. It's got two primary uses. On one end, on the youth side, we've created a guidance and career, a guidance and counseling center, which is going to be responsible for making sure young people can access the best career guidance and counseling for them to pick what they want to do with their lives. But also we have lost a whole generation 
of young people who have been affected by drug abuse and alcohol abuse. If you go to most shopping centers and you think of most of your schoolmates who you went to school, primary or high school with, they are stuck somewhere at a shopping center destroying their lives with cheap alcohol or cheap drug abuse. So we wanted to create a place where they can come and get rehabilitation. So in fact, the rehabilitation program is going to be our priority program in the guidance and counseling center. Meanwhile, Youth Minister Chris Mushowe would officiate the groundbreaking ceremony aimed at giving knowledge to the Zimbabwean public on the project on Friday. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema. Our headlines up next with Onelin Zinzi. Hundreds of Mozambicans flee into neighboring Malawi to escape fighting between the Mozambican army and the opposition Renamo party. Cameroon sends an additional 2,000 soldiers to its far north region after three suicide bomb attacks in regional capital Monroa in the past week. And Libya's eastern city of Benghazi is plunged into darkness as clashes between pro-government forces and Islamist fighters knock out three of five power stations serving the city. Channel Africa News. Thank you, Onele. A unit of ivory detection dogs last week graduated from the African Wildlife Foundation's Conservation Canine Program in Tanzania, having completed two months of intensive training wherein they learned to sniff out ivory hidden in vehicles, buildings and luggage. The dogs were trained alongside handlers from Tanzania's Wildlife Division and the Kenya Wildlife Service and will be deployed to the country's port of Mombasa and Tanzania's port of Dar es Salaam. The two ports have long been identified as primary export hubs for trafficked ivory out of Africa. Between 2006 to two and 2014, more than 85% of sea savanna elephant ivory was traced back to the East Africa region. Vice President of Species Protection at the African Wildlife Foundation, Dr. Philip Muruti, says this initiative will give a much-needed boost to wildlife protection efforts in those countries. As you know, we are in a poaching crisis in Africa, particularly pertaining to rhino and uh, and the elephant. And there is a lot of movement, illegal movement of the rhino horn and uh, and ivory. Uh, the, one of the key problems that we face, other than the poaching, is the a lot of this stuff, ivory and rhino horn and other illicit wildlife products are going through our ports, uh, airports and harbors undetected. So the purpose of the canine detector dogs is uh, to enhance detection so that once our people are apprehended, the culprits can be taken to court with the evidence and uh, a parallel program that we are doing, which is the capacity building for judiciary and prosecution, is tied to this. So we'll enhance detection of illicit wildlife products and in parallel find judges and, and prosecutors who are already prepared and sensitized, and so we can have commensurate sentencing. So the, the dogs, of course, you cannot corrupt a dog. The dogs using their natural ability to, to sniff certain scents have been trained 
but uh, equally important is uh, the training of the handlers. So we have, uh, we have trained handlers uh, in Tanzania. We have also trained uh, four dogs for Tanzania, six handlers, seven handlers for Kenya, four dogs. But this is just the beginning. We'll be doing other countries and also supporting this program for three years to make sure that it is sustainable. So basically, the purpose here is to enhance detection. Nobody should really pass through our ports with the ivory and the rhino horn. They also, these dogs, they act as deterrents. People know that they will be there. Maybe somebody is watching and somebody is sniffing for them. Do you also agree with views that what's most challenging about controlling smuggling at ports is, is the case of poorly policed ports, which often undermine efforts such as these. And there's also a general concern that there's few inspectors and agents patrolling large ports. Have you found that to be the case in the two ports that you're talking about today? That is very true. And uh, apart from South Africa, which has done relatively well, many countries in Africa do not have specific wildlife mechanisms. People are not trained to look for these illicit wildlife products passing through the ports. On transit, I should mention that these dogs, are the units are also mobile, so based on intelligence, you don't just stay at the port. You strategically place the dogs and the handlers. And most importantly, too, is you work with other agencies, so customs, police, wildlife officers. You work with intelligence. You are right that here we have got case of illicit trade, which has flourished, and one of the problems is primarily because of lack of adequate capacity. So this is the capacity that we are trying to build. These programs are recognized and are being asked for by the governments of these two countries and other countries such as DR Congo and Ethiopia which are our, and Mozambique and Botswana, which are our next uh, in, the, in this program, have already realized this and are asking for this kind of support. It is very important not just to put these dogs at ports, but also to take the next step, which is uh, work with other agencies so that uh, the end product is to stop the trafficking, get people into jails, uh, commensurate with the law. There's also an added challenge with the law courts often being lenient on smugglers all across the continent, that smugglers are often punished with a slap on the wrist. It is only recently that new laws were introduced to stem out the surge in poaching in Kenya, for instance. The East African region has unanimously agreed on tougher stances, and this is recent, seeing how big the problem is and how big the challenge is. What do you think of the progress that has so far been made in the region specifically? Some progress has been made in uh, Kenya, but remember that's just only in uh, in December 2013 <laughs> that we passed that law. After very long, our Wildlife Conservation and Management Act was done in 1976, revised in 89, and not until 2013 that we have seen that. I'm not aware of a, a commensurate a tougher law in Tanzania or in Uganda. Even in Kenya, there is still some concern that the, although the law has been passed, it is not being quickly expedited and they're being applied. Uh, there must be still be people who are going through the courts or who can have good, good lawyers and uh, commit crime, wildlife crime, and still go through. Um, 
unpunished or not adequately punished commensurate with the kind of profit that they make and uh, given that this is now organized crime, bringing in laws that treat it thus. And that was Dr. Philip Muruti, Vice President of Species Protection at the African Wildlife Foundation, on the line from Nairobi in Kenya, speaking to Selina Dobong. The South African Institution of Civil Engineering, Architecture, Engineering, Consulting Operations will be hosting an international aqua libium school water competition at Sai Bono Discovery Center in Newtown, Johannesburg on Friday. Marie Ashpole, Outreach Officer of the South African Institution of Civil Engineering, says this competition affords learners the opportunity of designing and constructing as well as to operate a water distribution network exactly the way civil engineering practitioners in local authorities and metros would do. The SICACOM Schools Water Competition has been in use since 2003. Now, this is the most amazing competition because it gets the learners the opportunity to experience civil engineering for exactly what it is, and that is creating infrastructure. The infrastructure we're talking about here is a distribution network, a water distribution network that these learners, within an hour, hour and a half's time, they have to design, they have to construct, and they have to operate this whole system. Now, it is so interesting because these learners have three meters of water in the reservoir, which is a big bucket, and on a grid, which is on the water cycle, the entire water cycle, they have to put three little buckets representing, say, a suburb, a township, and a village. And they have to distribute that water so that it would ideally be one litre, one litre, one litre for each. And I always tell them that, you know what, if I'm in the township and they give me two little water, I will toy toy. And the learners understand the basic principle of distributing this scarce water resource of ours equitably. Is it only for South African learners or are there other learners from other neighboring countries in the region? You know, we're trying so hard to get everybody in the sub-Saharan region to participate. But this year, we're really going international because Zimbabwe, as well as Swaziland, will represent their countries on Friday, the 31st, at the Saibono Discovery Center in this uh, very, very interesting project that we have. I can just mention that the wonderful side of what is happening with this competition is, is that learners actually, for the first time ever, experience what civil engineering is. They encounter exactly the same challenges that a civil engineer doing or operating a water distribution network in a town or in a metro that they would encounter. And these are the things that influence every single person's life in the country every single day. And that is to be able to open a tap 
with water coming out. How has this aqualibrium competition grown over the years? You know, it has grown phenomenally. Not only in South Africa, the ESA Institution of Civil Engineering has approximately 20 branches countrywide. And they each do a regional competition. And there, I know that Cape Town once had about 140 learners there participating in the regional competition. And all over the country, we have teams. It comes from Richards Bay, East London, Kimberley, all over the country. These kids are often, when it's too far to travel, they fly here and we put them up in a nice hotel. It is a time of first for many of the educators as well as the learners. And I hope that, that through the opportunity that you are giving us this time, that other countries like Botswana and Namibia and those countries that they will also see the value and the opportunity for these learners because it is a great opportunity. We have quite a number of learners from very disadvantaged areas. The one school I'm thinking here is Pomalong Secondary School in Tembisa here in Johannesburg. And from that school, we already have three learners who the one has just qualified as a civil engineer at WITS and the other two are now in their fourth year civil engineering, one at WITS and then one at the University of Cape Town. So these learners are making a difference to people's lives. They come from this Aqualibrium school water competition? Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, and I never cease to say thank you to the educators who are passionate to make a difference in their learners' lives. And that is what is happening. I can also mention that last year's winners, there are three members in a team, and all three of those learners are studying civil engineering because of the hands-on water competition. And if that isn't good news, I don't know what is good news. And that was Marie Ashpole, Outreach Officer of the South African Institution of Civil Engineering, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Lehuku. South Africa's ruling African National Congress has made an impassioned call to mining companies and the steel sector to review plans to cut jobs, uh, thousands of jobs. Mining companies such as Lonmin and Anglo-American have made recent announcements of plans to cut jobs. Emerging from a conference, ANC Secretary General Gwede Mantashe said any retrenchments would have serious consequences for the economy. Uh, however, called for caution in the manner in which mining incumbents react to these challenges, it is concerning that their response has been the cutting of jobs, which instead of resolving the challenges is deepening the crisis. Those companies that have already announced possible returns are called upon to review their plans and avoid massing job losses as such would lead, to fair, lead us further into crisis. 
South Africa's Peak and Pay plans to employ 5,000 people a year as it opens new stores in Africa's most advanced economy. Pig and Pay opened around 100 grocery stores last year despite subdued retail sales and gross domestic product growth of 2%. The grocer says it's aiming for a bit more this year. Pig and Pay employs around 36,000 staff. Africa's largest retailer, ShopRite, also says it plans to open 91 new supermarkets in South Africa in the next 18 months. Victims of apartheid in South Africa cannot pursue lawsuits seeking to hold vehicle manufacturer Ford and computer giant IBM liable for conducting businesses that helped perpetuate the practice. A U.S. federal appeals court in New York has ruled that black South Africans did not show that Ford and IBM engaged in enough wrongdoing to justify lawsuits over their alleged roles in human rights abuses. The plaintiffs sued under the Alien Tort Statute, a 19, or rather 1789 law, that lets non-U.S. citizens seek damages in U.S. courts for human rights abuses abroad. Rwanda has been urged to embrace the best international practices on taxation and transfer pricing to boost cross-border trade and enhance the investment environment. Tax expert Thomas Balko says adopting global best practices in tax administration helps promote tax rights as well as eliminate harmful tax competition that often affects the competitiveness of companies. The International Center for Taxation and Development Experts and others from the Central Asia Tax Research Center are conducting a five-day training for 100 tax inspectors, auditors and legal experts from across the country. The training workshop in Kigali is organized by the Rwanda Revenue Authority. Nigeria's gross domestic, or rather, government revenues have risen for the second consecutive month in June to 2.44 billion US dollars. The balance of the excess accrued account stood at 2.207 dollars, up from 2.078 billion dollars on June the 23rd. International oil prices rose at the end of April and benchmark brand futures were sustained in the $60 a barrel before falling again into the 50s a barrel at the start of July. Africa's biggest oil producer depends on oil sales for about 70% of its government revenues. One U.S. dollar trades at 1261 in South Africa, 993 in Botswana, 754 in Zambia, 63 British pound, 90 euro. On commodities market, a platinum, 979 dollars, gold, 1094 dollars an ounce, brand crude, 53 dollars, 7 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revive toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. Weya wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, Dumelang, San Bonani. Africa, Mulishadi, Pulibanji. Africa, Ayanyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our sports update up next with Tammy Kluza.
in your sport, Zambia's road to Moscow 2018 begins with the second round qualifying tie against regular World Cup enemies Sudan at the end of this year. This will be Zambia and Sudan's fourth meeting in a World Cup qualifier. Zambia later beat Sudan 3-2 on aggregate in a preliminary round qualifying tie during the France 1998 race. Group winners at the end of 2017 will qualify for Russia's final to be held from June the 14th until July the 15th, 2018. Zambia has never qualified to the World Cup. And South Africa's Bafana Bafana will face Angola in the second round of the 2018 Soccer World Cup qualifying in November following a lavish draw ceremony in St. Petersburg on Saturday. Sheikh's Mashaba's men will avoid playing the first round of the 2018 Soccer World Cup qualifiers due to their current place in the FIFA rankings. Bafana will play their first leg in Angola before playing host in the second leg. The winner of the round two fixtures will then split into five groups of four and will play each other home and away to decide which five nations will be heading to the showpiece event in Russia. Now, at the CAF Confederations Cup, Taborajale scored a superb goal as Orlando Pirates beat CS Faction 1-0 in the CAF Confederations Cup clash that was played in Tunisia on Saturday. Pirates remained second in Group B with six points from three matches, three points behind Egyptian giant Samalek who beat AC Leopards 2-0 in Cairo earlier in the day. Leopard and CS Faction have a point apiece. Now in rugby, South African Springboard coach China Kemea says that he's frustrated at the fact that his play his plans fell apart in his team's 27-20 loss against the All Blacks in their rugby championship test at the Emirates Island Park yesterday in the same way that it did against the Wallabies last weekend. Mayor gave credit to the All Blacks for the manner in which they fought back to win the game. Yeah, it's really frustrating, you know, uh, same thing as last week. Um, I really thought the plan worked. We were brilliant at the breakdown. Want to play positive, play some great positive rugby, but uh, I thought it was a big blow of Yanni going off. Uh, I thought we really scummed well up to that point. Uh, didn't doubt that Vince came on and he was injured as well. And um, for a big turning point when Francho Lowe went off. Uh, did his shoulder, couldn't continue, and then Lewitt as well, same as Victor last uh, week. So they lose three of your forwards. Meanwhile, All Blacks captain Richie Marco says that his team may have finished with the win at the end, but they were lucky to have gone into a halftime 10 all with the Springboks after having been dominated by the home side. I think we were, we were on the back foot for the first 40 anyway. Um, that was, you know, we, we had to have a good look at ourselves at half time. And we're probably pretty lucky to be, uh, you know, that try and half time kept us, uh, or got us back into the game, but didn't feel like that to be honest. And in cycling, British cyclist Chris Froome has won the Tour de France title in three years to enhance his growing reputation as a Grand Tour specialist. It was Team Sky's third triumph tour in four years after Bradley Wiggins prevailed in 2012 before Froome succeeded him in 2013. Froome was ecstatic about his win. The Mayor Jeune is special, very special. I understand its history, good and bad. I will always respect it, never dishonor it, and I will always be proud to have won it. Thank you very much. And now in athletics, London's Diamond League meeting at the Olympia Park was partly characterized by the breathtaking performances by the world-acclaimed sprinter Usain Bolt of Jamaica, Wade Van Niekerk of South Africa, and Nigel Amos of Botswana. Our correspondent, Kesho Mnyati, reports. The two-day competition in the British capital certainly brought back memories to the athletes who competed at this beautiful sporting facility which was built to host the 2012 London Olympic Games. Usain Bolt returned to the stadium where he sensationally won the 100, 200 and anchored his country's 4 by 100 meters relay team to a fantastic victory. 
South Africa's Wade Van Ikek continued to grab good deadlines on the international stage with a perfect victory in the 400 meters. The Commonwealth Games silver medalist in Glasgow intelligently made his way from behind to beat the front pack led by Isaac Maguala of Botswana, who drastically faded towards the end. Geshom Yati, Channel Africa Sports, London. And finally, American Marco Dawson has won the Senior Open Championship presented by Rolex, holding off a star-studded field, and he has won it in style at Sunning Daily, closing with a 64 for 16 under par. Nick Dye reports. Life's begun at 50 for Dawson. He made a good living on the PGA Tour, but second place was the closest he came to victory 20 years ago. He only played in three major championships. Yet he's won on the Champions Tour in Tucson earlier this season and he's played with confidence and belief here to hold off the determined challenges of defending champion Bernhard Langer and Colin Montgomery. Dawson chipped in for eagle at the ninth just when it looked like he was slipping away. He notched a further eagle at 14, leaping to the top of the leaderboard. Monty had been clear until two bogeys wrecked his cause. Langer moved top until that eagle, and Dawson holed a tremendous long birdie putt at the last to keep Langer at bay. Having endured two operations on his back, he says all the hard work over years has now come to fruition. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, fear in Somalia after Al-Shabaab announces that it was planning an attack and Zimbabwean youth begin construction of the only resource center meant to benefit young people in the country. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebo Munamukhulu, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Tepo Tula with a song titled Nonyana. Yeah. Hey.
Let's go.